Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it will encourage you and help you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. If you have your Bibles, I'll ho- I hope you'll turn with me. Um, you can go to chapter 9, Revelation chapter 9. We're, we're today in an interesting territory in Revelation, sort of looking at everything from chapter 8 all the way into 11, but we're going to read a few things in chapter 9 and maybe glance at a few other things along the way. Again, kind of like two weeks ago, <clears throat> instead of going deeply into large swaths of passage and text in Scripture, today I want to sort of give you tools and a framework that you can approach this text with as you read it. How many of you believe that Bible reading is an important part of your own devotional life? Somebody who follows Jesus should be reading the Bible. Not out of rule or obligation, but this is the living word of truth from God. And um, how many of you, you know, many of you already put up your hands and say, yeah, we should read the Bible. How many of you, if you're honest, say, it's pretty confusing at times. I put my hands up too. That's why it's important that we give time and attention to teaching from the Word and teaching the Word and even teaching how to approach the Word. So again, today we're going to sort of hover 30,000 feet over chapters 8 through 11. We'll kind of dip down into a few places along the way. But again, today my heart, like two weeks ago, would be to give you some tools that you can work with and bring home with you as you read through chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. You'll have a clear understanding of how to unpack all that lives in there. And like all of the other places in Revelation that are a bit confusing or complex, there are important things to observe in here. And there are important things to behold about Jesus in this text. Last week, we were introduced to a Greek word that appears five times in Revelation, thalipsis. Can everybody say thalipsis? I I was surprised how many people asked me after the service, how do I spell that? And I was encouraged by that because either uh, we have grammar majors who are just trying to figure things out in their brain or people are actually trying to take notes on things. And it is important, I think, to note things so that you can refer back to it as you read Revelation yourself. Thalipsis, T-H, it's, it's a Greek word, so there is no you know, English spelling of it, it's just phonetic, but it's T-H-L-I-P-I-S-I-S, something like that, Thalipsis, so you just, it's almost like Mississippi, but shorter and with a th at the beginning, Thalipsis, and what does Thalipsis mean? It means this crushing kind of pressure that happens when tectonic plates under the earth come together and then we have an earthquake that occurs. The pressure can be held by the meeting place no longer and all of a sudden there's disruption and disturbance. And it turns, the the use of Philipsis throughout scripture is often translated into the word trouble or trial or difficulty or tribulation. And some of us have been conditioned by more recent kinds of teaching that have come around in the last 200 years, popularized in the last 50 years, to think that tribulation is something that's coming one day in the future. When we look at the original language, we realize John's already acknowledging in chapter 1, I am your present, I'm your brother who's alongside you in Thalipsis. It's happening now. In fact, uh, after chapter 7, we don't encounter the word Thalipsis any longer, so we're not to look forward to a, a, a soon coming other kind of Thalipsis. We understand it's been going on. And we had some diagrams we looked at last week that showed how at Christmas and Easter, the first Christmas and the first Easter, was the the real inbreaking of God's kingdom to come and reclaim and renew his world. 
And did the kingdom of darkness, you know, roll out the red carpet and say, sure, have your way, we'll just we'll let ourselves out. No, they're resisting, there's upheaval. And the seven seals are all about the resistance and upheaval. And as Christians, as followers of Christ, 2,000 years ago and today, we continue to find ourselves caught in the crunch at times of clashing kingdoms, one that is victorious, that is ousting the other. The reason Revelation was written is because in the midst of Thalipsis, those first seven churches in what is now Turkey, Christians caught in the crunch at times were finding themselves having to weigh things out. Compromise or faithfulness? Because you see, it would seem that compromise would get you out of the Thalipsis. Faithfulness would keep you in it and sometimes losing your life, your possessions, your loved ones because of it. That's why last week's message was so important. It was on those who are sealed. God has a way to make people safe in this world through Thalipsis. What is it? His, he seals them. He marks them. All kinds of things might happen to you and I and to other followers of Christ around the world, but they can never touch your soul. They can never take away what God has eternally promised to you through Jesus Christ. You belong to him and his new world. For those of you who are maybe joining us for the first time today and you might be wondering how are we approaching Revelation, here's a bit of a summary statement, a why Revelation kind of statement. The Revelation was written so that followers of Jesus who are facing the pressures of culture and the gods of their age could see what is actually going on behind the scenes so that they could see who the Lord and Savior of the whole world really is and settle once and for all who their allegiance, trust, and worship belongs to. I've tried to find a few different ways to talk about Revelation in ways that might connect with some parts of our church family. And so a few weeks ago I used Star Wars and there was a great response from all my Star Wars people. And then there's blank looks from the others. So here's another attempt. Maybe you're not a Star Wars person, but you understand music. If Revelation was a song, here's how it might be broken down. Well, let me back up and just say this. Songs have a basic structure to them, don't they? There's an intro, a verse, Sometimes verses repeat themselves or there's multiple verses, there's a chorus, there's an outro, and then there's an end. Revelation, you could say, is broken down as if it were a song. The introduction, the introduction of a song, should there should be something compelling and captivating about an introduction of a song. And so where do we see that in Revelation? Chapter 1 is all about Jesus. It's setting the stage for where the whole book's message is going. A very compelling, very captivating introduction. The verse of a song details the story. You know, when you think about songs that you like, whether it's a worship song or something you listen to in your headphones or whatever it is, the the verses carry the story. They carry the details, don't they? And chapters 2 and 3 sort of live like that in Revelation. Those are the letters to the churches. These are the ones who are supposed to hear it. Now, the chorus of the song is the main theme and the main message. And where do we find that? Early on in Revelation, actually. Chapters 4 and 5. It's when there's an apocalypse. There's an opening, an unveiling to see into what? The throne room. Behold, there's a throne. Behold, someone's on it. And Behold, we thought we were going to see a lion, but instead we've seen a lamb. God's strength is manifest through lamb-like self-giving love. Wow. That's sort of at the crux and at the heart, what we're to behold together. The chorus is always the most important part of a song. And chapters 4 and 5 carry that main theme, that main message, to behold Jesus. Now, the outro, usually of a song, is a bit of a shorter part. 
This is where it gets a bit interesting in the book of Revelation. The outro is chapter 6 all the way through 20. Pretty long outro, isn't it? Now, if you're a music person or you maybe helped on a worship team before, do you know what a tag is? When you tag something, you sort of go into repeating something. You, you repeat it and repeat it again. Musically or vocally, you repeat it, you tag it. Um, do you know what a big ending in a song is? Uh, you know, a generation or two in old school church, we were very good at big endings. The way you did a big ending was you would tag something a couple times, and then for maybe the third tag, as you were winding up the song finally, you would slow it down, even add a bit of variation, but it would still sound like the previous two tags, but it was slowed down, and at the same time, somehow you were building momentum to crescendo towards this triumphant, big ending. You know, and the drummers splashing out and everything somehow getting louder and louder and big ending, okay? Slow and, slow and it crescendos towards a triumphant ending. Now, let's use those thoughts in mind as we think of the outro, which is a big part of Revelation, chapter 6 all the way through chapter 20. It's not the chorus, it's the outro. But do we notice any tags going on, any repetition? Well, actually, we do. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. So we hear the seven seals, and then they're repeated again. It's like they're tagged, and it comes at us again, but just with a slight variation. And instead of sounding like seven seals, this time it sounds like seven trumpets. And then after that, once we finish chapter 11, some scholars would say that the midpoint of Revelation is chapter 12 and onward. And then what we have from chapter 12 through 20 is a slowed down replay Again, of the seven seals and the seven trumpets, we find the bowls kind of in there, but it slows the whole story down and builds and builds and builds. It crescendos towards a triumphant ending, which appears in chapters 22, uh, 21 and 22. Clear? Music people, you're good with that? You're like, oh, okay, I didn't understand the Star Wars thing, but I'm with you now. Okay, that's another way we can look at Revelation together. Today, chapters 8 through 11, we're going to consider the seven trumpets together. These are best understood by understanding their parts in the song. Remember, if we're saying the outro begins at chapter six, the first part of the outro, the first tagline is the seven seals. The second tagline then would be these seven trumpets. There's a way in which they reflect or they echo what we've already heard in the seven seals. How do we know that the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls are intended to be connected? Well, there are intentional connections to pay attention to. The first is the seventh occurrence of each, the, the, bowl, uh, the seal, the trumpet, and the bowl. The seventh trumpet, sorry, the seventh seal ends with prayer and then a demonstration of God's power. The seventh trumpet, as we'll see, ends with worship and then a demonstration of God's power. And then the seventh bowl ends with what? A declaration of God's word and then a demonstration of his power. The first six in each of them seem to be events happening on earth, but number seven features in heaven. So there's something in common through all the number sevens. Secondly, as you're seeing on the screen here, there's a connection between the seals and the trumpets, and then we're going to see in a moment, there's a connection between the trumpets and the bowls. How are the seals and the trumpets connected? They have a common structure. Hopefully the way it's laid out on the screen for you helps you to understand. The first four seals and then the first four trumpets come at us rapidly when we read through them. Bang, 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 bang. Four horsemen, you know, in the seals right away. And as we look at the trumpets, there's four things that arrive very swiftly at the beginning. Then numbers five and six are drawn out. 
They're not as rapid. There's more detail. It slows down. Then after number six, there's an interlude in the seals. We looked at the interlude last week. It's the whole of chapter seven. After the sixth trumpet, there is an interlude as well. It's chapter 10 and into 11 all the way to verse 14. Then we come to the seventh in each. Now, that's how the seals and the trumpets are connected. How are the trumpets and the bowls connected to each other? They have a common content. There is something that lives, if you pay attention to the themes and the things going on in the seven trumpets and then the themes and the things going on in the seven bowls, you realize there's a storyline that it's reflecting here. There's an echo of something. And what is it echoing? The story of the exodus from Egypt. You have to remember that so many people in the early church had very Jewish roots. And even the first followers of Christ who came into following Jesus from a Gentile background, like a non-Jewish background, they were introduced to their faith story because the Jewish history becomes our history as well. And so the story of Exodus, the story of Egypt and deliverance from it is massively important to first Christians and it should be to us today. So for those of you who are trying to remember what happened in Exodus, I forgot how long ago I watched Prince of Egypt. There's a bad guy, the Pharaoh. There's evil power. Then there are plagues that start coming as warnings, as signs. And the hope is that might, it might soften the heart somehow of people involved, but it doesn't. Hearts are, hardened. Hearts are hardened. Then there's a marking that occurs. Remember the blood on the doorposts? And those who have the blood on the doorposts, they're safe. Do we recall any markings going on in the text so far? Absolutely. Last week, chapter 7 God seals his followers through Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit. And then in the Exodus story, yes, God's people are saved. They're brought through a really miraculous and powerful deliverance, and the enemy is utterly and finally defeated. And so when you stack the seven trumpets and the seven bowls next to each other, it doesn't go in a perfect order, but you start realizing, oh, look at these content things that reflect off of each other, intentionally woven in there by the Spirit to remind us of Exodus in Egypt. We see hail, blood, Water, locust, frogs, boils, darkness, death. So today, we give our attention to trumpets. Why trumpets? Why trumpets? In Israel, there was a couple main reasons trumpets were used. Uh, number one, trumpets may be used at times to make a special announcement when a new king has been installed or is enthroned. Well, do we see any of that occurring around the time of the first Christmas and the first Easter, absolutely. But most commonly, if you pay attention in the Old Testament to the use of trumpets, they are used as a means of sounding a warning. Can everybody say warning? warning. Trumpets, I want you to think warning. Um, where are my Mario Kart people at? Anybody grow up on Mario Kart? You know, when you were little or when you had kids and you were introducing them to Mario Kart, remember how they wouldn't know which way to drive and they would just turn around sometimes. And then that little thing would come down on a cloud and an alert would start happening, right? And what did that alert mean? You're going the wrong way. Now, that little thing wasn't blowing a trumpet, but there's a sound associated with, you are going the wrong way. Revelation and its trumpets are sounding the same kind of warning. Watch out, something's Wrong. Something needs to change. 
So let's sort of fly over the trumpets at 30,000 feet, if you will. We're not gonna go into beginning to read all the detail of it. I'll let you do that. But I just want you to sort of see with me the summary of what's going on in the seven trumpets. Look at these. The first trumpet sounds, and what happens? There's hail, there's fire, there's blood, and the earth experiences a scorching consequence of it. Second trumpet sounds. There's this sort of volcanic, fiery mountain that thrusts itself into the sea, and then there's blood. And what's the result? There's destruction to sea and to life. Third trumpet sounds, and then there's this asteroid that comes down, crashing into earth, and all the fresh water is poisoned. The asteroid is named bitterness. That doesn't sound like a happy asteroid, does it? And what's the result? People die. Fourth trumpet sounds, and what happens? All of a sudden, the sun, the moon, the stars experience a darkening as if all together in the same moment. And it's very vivid language. They're darkened during the day. And how in the world? But it says vividly the sun is darkened even at the night. Well, isn't it already dark at night? I don't know. It must be figurative, symbolic language meaning something. But darkness starts covering the earth. Fifth, and things get awful here as you read it. These horrifying locusts come out of a bottomless pit. Some translations use the word abyss there. If you look into it, it's as if it says bottomless pit. These horrifying locusts come up and all they do is torment, torment, torment. It's very demonic, very grotesque. Sixth, a horrifying army now comes. 200 million. It's, it's baffling, it's intimidating, it's terrifying. And what's the result? There's death. Seventh, after the interlude, seventh trumpet sounds, and we hear an announcement about God's kingdom. And then there's worship, and there's a heaven quake again. Now, those are the details that we see there. Let me just sort of try to summarize. In, again, we're flying over at 30,000 feet, so we're just, I'm just trying to summarize in clear ways for you what we see going on here. I want you to see this with me. In the first four trumpets, what are we observing? The same, and I'm borrowing somebody else's language and I didn't think anybody could improve on it. Nature is going berserk. Nature is reacting and responding to what's going on in the world and it doesn't know how to handle itself. Nature gone berserk, nature gone berserk, nature gone berserk, nature gone berserk. It's as if nature itself is reacting to the influence of Satan, the influence of independent humanity, the influence of sin upon it, and it's groaning. And as we observe it, we're thinking, something's not right here. This is a warning. The world is not as it should be. It wasn't meant to quake and destroy the way it is. At times, our world is such a lovely, beautiful place to live. And at other times, it acts furiously, it seems, against humanity and against itself. As if to say, as we hear in Romans, that it's groaning for a new day to be made into a new creation. The fifth trumpet is sound, and that's where we hear of these horrifying locusts coming up to torment people. And now what do we see? Frightening. I'm sorry to use so many words, but we have to give attention to just how awful this depiction actually is. It's meant to capture our attention in a vivid, shocking kind of way. There's frightening, gruesome, hellish torture 
and destruction. This is no longer nature doing its thing. This is now some sort of otherworldly force. You and I would understand this to be very demonic. But if you're in the world without the same narrative as us, you're unsure of what's going on, but it, it seems so awful. You're like, I, I don't even think this can be human or explained by creation itself or the earth. There is something otherworldly going on here. Listen to verse 11 in chapter 9. After these locust-like beings come out of this bottomless pit, it says, they had a king over them, the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, which means place of destruction, and in Greek, Apollyon, which means destroyer. I mean, this is unpleasant news. This is unpleasant stuff. But, but I think for you and I in our narrative, as we understand the story of God through Scripture, it's not hard for us to see that, yes, creation is groaning. Nature is going berserk at times, isn't it? It's its way of saying, this is not how I was meant to be. Things are disordered in creation itself, and it's not hard for us to see in our scriptural gospel narrative that there is an enemy from a pit that is seeking to bring destruction and death to earth in the most awful kinds of ways. Then as we look again at the sixth trumpet, there's this horrifying army resulting in death, and what is the summary of that? Again, many words, but we have to allow these words to do something to our soul. There's a frightening, gruesome, hellish kind of war and death. 200 million is the number that John hears of this army coming from a particular direction. As one scholar says, I mean, imagine your worst nightmares and then double it. That's what the number 200 million is supposed to represent. It's not supposed to be some sort of literal number. We're not supposed to figure out, wait, which country of today lives in that direction and might have 200 million people? Oh, that means them. No, it doesn't. Have we ever found numbers to be literal in Revelation so far? No, they're symbolic. 200 million, what does it mean? Worst nightmare times two. It's awful. This is what it's like when Satan and evil no longer veil themselves when they show their true colors. So it just brings all kind of havoc to earth. And then listen to what the result of it is. And it's saddening. Chapter 9, verse 20. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues, notice the word plague, remember the Exodus motif, motif. they still did not repent of the works of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, and stone and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, nor their thefts. In spite of how awful we see these things going on in the world around us. They saw 2,000 years ago. We see today. There was, there was this sense that the people still were not repenting. Uh, some people might have a view that, well, I, whoa, is this God just doing a whole bunch of bad stuff to try to scare people into repentance? And, and we'll try to address that a little later on. I, I don't think it's that. This is just what happens as 
Satan and evil are allowed to show their full colors. They have opportunity to really be seen for what they are, and they begin wreaking havoc on earth and amongst people. And, and does it bring about repentance? No. So is all hopeless then for all the people who are on earth? And the great news is the answer to that question is no. All is not hopeless for those who remain. And how do we know that? Next week we'll give time to the interlude that appears, especially in chapter 11. But as you look in chapter 10 and the first part of chapter 11, repentance does not come by means of all this destruction and difficulty that we see in these trumpets. But as the church embraces what's spoken to it in chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 11, there is the hope of repentance for the world. Why? Because in chapter 10, we see that the church is called to bring a message to the world. And in chapter 11, in its beginning verses, we see that the church is called to faithful witness in this world. Do all the awful things and calamities, are they designed by God somehow to bring about repentance? No. But they capture attention. They are warnings. But God has put his people, you and I, in the midst of a world that's in calamity so that we can carry his message and be faithful to witness. There is hope for our world. It's what God's put in you and I through Jesus Christ. Then we find the seventh trumpet sounds. And in your groups this week, I'm going to have you read through the seventh trumpet together. It's the best part of the whole text because it's all worship and praise and acknowledging who God is and what he's done. So as you look at the seven trumpets, could we summarize it this way? The seven trumpets seem to portray earth and people experiencing catastrophic destruction and death. Does that sound oddly familiar? <laughs> Does it sound at all like the seven seals that we looked, like, uh, looked at just a few weeks ago? Remember the whole musical thing, a tag, a repeat, just with a variation? It is the same kind of thing. When John, under the influence of the Spirit, is writing about seven seals, then seven trumpets, then seven bowls, it doesn't seem that he's laying out 21 things to happen in a chronological order. He's laying out a seven from one angle, and we observe it. Then he's laying out another seven from one angle, and we observe it from that angle. Then another seven to observe it from that angle. He's describing the kind of realities that he and those first churches were experiencing 2,000 years ago. And if we look at these realities, nature gone berserk and hellish influences infiltrating earth, do we see that happening in our day and age too? Could you say that that's happening right now? What do we realize with the seals, the trumpets, the bowls? We're seeing the same kind of thing occurring, but just from different points of view. The seals, we're seeing the same kind of things happen, but from the viewpoint of the church. The trumpets, where we are today, we're seeing things as experienced or seen by the world. The bowls, as we'll see at some point early next year, is from the point of view of the throne. Same kind of thing occurring, just from different points of view. Seven trumpets equal then a warning to the world to capture the attention of people who don't know Jesus yet. Something's not right. You're going the wrong way. Daryl Johnson says it like this. The harsh, the harsh realities of history 
sound the alarm that something is wrong and we had better get it right. The harsh realities of history sound the alarm that you are going down the wrong road and you better turn around. Chapter 8 through 11 draw attention to five things that I want us to give consideration to today. Five things that I think were intended to behold about Jesus. So would you look at these five things together with me? We're going to give the most time to the first one, and it's this. Behold Jesus, who cares deeply about justice. As you spend time reading chapters 8 through 11, don't forget that this is helping us to see how committed to justice God is. Do you remember... In the seals, at one point there was martyrs under a throne and they're asking God, how long, O Lord? God, will you bring justice to this world? And does God sort of fold his arms and say, oh, justice seems inconvenient, uh, uncomfortable. No, he cares for justice. He hates injustice. Some people make a big deal out of this idea that, well, God... God seems so judgy. Why is the Bible so judgy all the time? And I I think that that point of view is fraught with all kinds of error. And I can't blame people for arriving at that conclusion apart from Christ. But you and I as followers of Jesus should understand that judgment in Scripture comes to us as good news because it's so closely linked to justice. Justice matters. And you cannot have justice without judgment. Judgment as we see it in these chapters, is God judging evil and sin. I just appreciate so deeply how Daryl Johnson outlines God's judgment. He says these five things about judgment. Judgment means, number one, that God cares. I mean, could you imagine if God just folded his arms, stepped back, and just went, well, let's let it be. I'm too uncomfortable to get involved. No, he cares about people. He cares about those trapped in injustice. He wants to do something about it. Number two, justice means, judgment, sorry, means people and their choices matter to God. You, everybody say me. You and your choices matter to God. Three, judgment means that God takes evil and sin seriously. Friends, and that's good news because you and I don't want to live in a world polluted by evil and sin. We hate how it affects us and we hate how it affects those around the world so unfairly who are oppressed. God takes that seriously and judgment is him doing something about it. For judgment means God is not indifferent or tolerant of evil and sin. And fifth, judgment means that God moves against evil and sin. How does he move against evil and sin? As you read through chapters 8 through 11, here's what we get to observe. God gives space for sin, for Satan, and for self to experience the consequences of themselves. God gives space for sin, Satan, and self to wrath themselves. And I think this is consistent with things we see elsewhere in Scripture. If you've been journeying with us for the last couple of years, we've spent time looking at the story of God and five trees. The first two trees we see in Scripture, the tree of life. The second tree, we could call it a tree of death. In our church, we call it the tree of freedom. And here's why. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's God's way of saying, in my world, you have a choice. Dependence upon me or independence. You could do it your own way if you want. We make a big deal about praying prayers to God like this. Thy will be done. 
What's remarkable and shocking and scary for us to have to pay attention to is God is so committed to relationship with humanity that he doesn't want us to be robots forced into fake relationship with him. He wants people who want to be with him because they love him and because he loves them. He's so committed to that that he gives you choice. And God says to humanity, thy will be done. And so what do we see happening in our world? Well, a lot of chapter 8 through 11, don't we? A lot of humanity having it their way. How's it going for us? Shouldn't that scream, warning, warning, warning. Things aren't going the way they should be. Turn around, go in a different direction. God is committed to love and relationship, and he's committed to giving freedom. In Romans chapter 1, we find a lot of detail about an uncomfortable word, the wrath of God. But how do we see it in Romans 1 articulated? Over and over and over again, it's said this way, that God gave them over to. Humanity was choosing to distance themselves from God, flirt with other things of the world, and what does God say? Thy will be done. Have it your way. You want to experiment with that? You will face the repercussions that come with doing that. He gave them over to their choices. Jesus in the Gospels says, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. It will be ruined. And so what do we see in Revelation 8 through 11? The kingdom of humanity as inspired and motivated by self and Satan in cahoots together is not standing. It's self-destructing. How? It's wrathing itself. This is the judgment of God. Oh, how does sin, Satan, and self punish itself so destructively? Behold, Jesus, who cares deeply about justice. Secondly, behold, Jesus, who is patient. When you read through chapter 8 and onward, you're going to notice a pattern as the trumpets are sounding you're going to come across a fraction. The math people in the room are like, oh, there's math in the Bible, yeah. One-third appears over and over and over again in the trumpets. One-third, one-third. One-third of the earth was scorched, or one-third of the people were affected, or one-third of the people died. One-third, one-third, one-third. Remember those locusts that came out of the abyss? They did their awful torturing work for five months, which sounds awful. Who wants five months of that? But guess what? Five months also screams to us, wow, it's only that. It could be forever, but it's not. It's limited. Somehow it's held back. What's going on? Why is it only five months? Why is it only one-third? In the midst of humanity, sin, self, and Satan wrathing itself on earth, God is keeping things at bay. Why? 2 Peter 3.9 answers it for us. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. Behold, when you see the one-thirds when you read this, when you find the five months, this is the mercy of God holding things back so that there's opportunity for humanity to experience rescue in him. 
Thirdly, behold Jesus, who cares deeply about Christians tangled in compromise. Can you imagine those seven churches who got this letter 2,000 years ago? And there's some of them who have the audacity to believe that there's actually something called secret sin. They're like, oh, I kind of have this thing. It's sort of like this guilty pleasure in my life. Nobody knows about it. There's no such thing as secret sin. God knows about every one of them. But can you imagine one of them in the early church harboring this secret sin? And then they get this letter and they're like, it really looks like the ship goes down here, doesn't it? Do I want to be on that ship? Do I want to harbor what I feel is a secret sin? Do I want to hang on to some internal compromise? Or do I want to follow the way of the Lamb faithfully? Jesus, when he's articulating through the seven trumpets the warning to the world, you're wrathing yourself, you're going to go down. I think some of the first Christians realized, there's some of that in me. I better watch out. And Jesus cares for Christians who find themselves tangled or teased or tempted or distracted by compromise. Where are my Keith Green people at? Yeah, not a very loud bunch, except for Joanne. I love Keith Green. He had a song called, So You Want to Go Back to Egypt, where it's warm and secure. A great line in there, banana bread. If there's, if you listen to the song, you'll probably find it on YouTube or something. He writes this song about the children of Israel who've been saved from such a wretched past in Egypt. And we see it in the Old Testament. They're longing to go back to the place of their bondage and destruction. It's so backward. And Keith Green writes this song sort of pointing out, don't we find ourselves in the same boat at times where we're like, actually, I've been saved from this, but I kind of want to flirt back into it a little bit. Really? You want to go back to Egypt? I think this is why his book, Keith Green's book, was called No Compromise. I want you to picture it this way. The ocean has a furious storm, and there are two boats. One boat is wrathing itself so badly that there's holes poked into itself. It is going to go down. The other boat is Jesus sealing and saving his people. He's thrown you a life raft. You come to his boat, and then you feel teased, tempted, captivated by something of the world, and you jump ship and start swimming for the other boat. That's compromise. Get out. Don't go down with that ship. As a pastor, I, I care. And sometimes you bring things up because you're like, I guess I just have to because this is the word of God. And it, it's not comfortable. But we care. And the reality is in a church like ours, there is compromise. Now the good news is we have a rescuer. We have a redeemer. We have an ability to repent and remove ourselves from it. But I must give time to passages of scripture that call to the church. There is no room in your life for deliberate compromise. I'm not talking about you being tempted. I'm not talking about a, a slip up. I'm talking about sort of this harboring of something that you know it's just not right. In Galatians, Paul is talking about being sealed by the Spirit and how the Spirit will lead us toward a lifestyle in Christ. But if we do not pay attention to the way of the Spirit and we start allowing the voice of the world a greater prominence, 
what we begin discovering is one compromise leads to the next compromise, leads to the next. Paul articulates it this way. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality in the, in the context of the New Testament, this meant any sex outside of marriage. Impurity, lust, debauchery, idolatry, worshiping other things than Jesus, hatred, discord, jealousy, angry fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Friends, there is no room as followers of Christ for harboring things like just bending the truth a little bit, for dishonesty, for ego, for image, for popularity, for acceptance to be the God that we worship. When we worship a God in that way, we've left one ship where we found ourselves sealed and secure, and we're heading for a sinking ship that's wrathing itself already. Gossip, lust, there are no secret sins. Friends, beware. Sins are not to be toyed with. They wrath themselves viciously. They destroy people even before hell becomes a possibility in many ways. Behold Jesus, who cares deeply for Christians who are tangled in compromise. Fourth, behold Jesus, who gives opportunity for repentance. Remember that second Peter passage? God is patient, longing for all people to repent. I need to remind you that in Scripture, repentance is a good word. It's a happy word. Sometimes we think, oh, repentance. I grew up in a church era where repentance was always like, put on your sad face, be as sorry as possible to God. If you can produce some tears, that will only help, so go for it. <laughs> That's not biblical repentance. Sure, we can feel remorse and sorry for our sins. In fact, it's probably healthy for us too. But if it does not produce a change in thinking, a new decision and a new direction, that's not repentance. And here, God graciously through chapters 8 through 11 is presenting to the church in Turkey, watch out for compromise. And friend, if you find yourself tangled in it, there is a way out. It's called, and here's a good news, it's actually a gift, repentance. You can change your thinking. You can make a new decision. You can go in the opposite direction. Fifth, and lastly, and I think triumphantly and wonderfully, behold Jesus, who makes judgment a good news word. I mean, this might come at us like, really? I have to... Nobody ever wants to be called judgy. Well, Jesus isn't judgy in that way. But he is the only, one and only, true, just judge. And just like repentance is a good word, meaning you don't actually have to throw yourself onto a sinking ship, you can receive a life ring and be rescued onto a ship that's going to make it through the storm. That, if that's repentance, sign me up. Just like repentance becomes a good word, judgment becomes a good word because it's associated with Jesus. Judgment is a good news word because of justice. Judgment is a good news word because he takes it upon himself. Listen to how N.T. Wright articulates it. Judgment is highlighted biblically as good news, 
not bad. Why so? It is good news because the one through whom God's justice will finally sweep the world is not a hard-hearted, arrogant, or vengeful tyrant, but rather the man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. The Jesus who loved sinners and died for them. The Messiah who took the world's judgment upon himself at the cross. Friends, that's good news for you and I. Listen to how Tim Keller articulates it so beautifully. He says this, Jesus Christ is the judge of all the earth who came the first time, not with a sword in his hand, but with nails through his hands. Not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment for us. Jesus Christ is the judge who was judged so that all who believe in him can face the future day of judgment with confidence. On that day, because we are pardoned, he will be able to end all evil without ending us. That's the gospel. Friends, that's good news. Could we stand together? Before we take a moment to worship in response, I want to just pray a prayer. And as the band plays softly in the background, what we want to do today is just give time and space, even if it's just 30 seconds, for the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. He's so good that he would bring up compromise, not to be a nag or a nitpick, but because he wants to rescue you. He wants to help you. So if you would be willing, just symbolically, would you hold out your hands as if to say, okay, God, I trust you. If there's anything you need to identify in my life that's out of order, that's in compromise, I would rather follow you than the way of pleasure, the way of self, the way of the world. Holy Spirit, we welcome your work of speaking to our hearts because you're good. Maybe there is a need or concern in your life. Please don't leave without having somebody pray alongside you. Some of you, maybe there was something the Spirit spoke to your heart today and you realize, I need, I need to get this off my chest before God together with someone else. I need someone to pray with me and pray for me. Many of you today maybe felt something that the Spirit spoke to you about, and you do have DNA relationships in your life, close friends of faith that you can be vulnerable and share from your heart with. Maybe in your pop-up group or your life group, you break into small sort of twos and threes. There may be things that the Spirit spoke to you today that you need to work out with others. Don't journey alone. Let me pray for you. Father, we give you thanks for your work in our lives by the Holy Spirit. We acknowledge that you're good. Your heart is to redeem, to rescue, to restore, to renew. We want to align ourselves with what you're doing in our lives and in this world. Jesus, we praise you as the only one who can redeem and restore. It's this truth, it's this love that we want to see touch lives everywhere here in the Comox Valley. So we declare again our dependence on you to be used by you. We need the anointing of your spirit. We need each other. We could carry your message and ministry into the everyday stuff of life right here in the Comox Valley this week. Thank you, God. Bless each one, I pray as we go in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 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 God bless you. Have a wonderful afternoon. If you'd like to join us for the potluck, seniors and friends, 1230, come on back and enjoy 
a great meal and some fellowship together today. God bless you. Thanks again for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged you as you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more.